he's walking through Colossians, and I said last week that we, as we covered the first five verses of Colossians 3, that that was a transitional verse. We're moving from the first two chapters of theology, or more specifically, Christology, or Christology, which means the knowledge of Christ. Paul has been putting forward in the first two full chapters that Christ is cosmic. He is bigger than the small box that we put him in. And now, Paul is making a transition to talk not simply about knowledge, but how that knowledge impacts our behavior. And what behavior becomes us as followers of Christ now that we know who he is. I'm going to begin reading with verse 5 through verse 11. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please allow me just a moment to pray. Father, contained in these verses is a challenge. A challenge to my and our behavior. But it's more than that. It's a test and a challenge of my heart. Lord Jesus, would you do what I am incapable of doing this morning? Lord Jesus, by the power of your spirit, which is real, would you do what we are incapable of doing this morning? That as we present ourselves before you, change us. Change us. Change us at the point of our greatest need for change. Father, we are surrendered to that. And to the degree that we look to you, I pray that that change will occur. Perhaps it's just a start this morning. But Father, we do ask that you would change us and craft us and mold us so that joy returns freedom returns, laughter returns, and we know once again what our identity is in you. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. There's an underlying thesis that should start to emerge in our study and in the sermons and messages in Colossians. And it's this. That every destructive, offensive, and I would say self-destructive as well as community-destroying, sinful 
offensive transgression, bad behavior can be traced back to faulty knowledge of who Christ is. In other words, to the degree that I am unknowing of who Christ is, to the degree that I am in revolt and refuse to acknowledge and believe who Christ is, to the degree that I have forgotten, I just don't remember who Christ is, then that same degree of sin, offense, behavior begins to occur in my life. In other words, I obey and I obey freely and I follow him and I am free, increasingly free from sin's captivity of me to the degree that I acknowledge the gospel, I believe the gospel, I preach the gospel to myself, and I walk in the gospel. Now, if you look at verse 5, we talked about this last week as being really getting to idolatry, which is the things that are in deep, deep, deep beneath the surface. The heart, that our heart has chosen to pursue other things rather than Christ, because it's a hungry heart. Verse 6 is striking because it says that for those that do those things, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And the tense of that is that it's not simply something in the future, but it's something that we're experiencing now. In other words, those that do these things are under God's wrath, and things such as wrathful consequences are going to be visited to us by the hand of God because we're doing these things. How does that make you feel? Is God right now angry with you when you sin? Is God angry with you when you sin? When I have asked that question of Christians, the majority of Christians answer it this way. Well, when I sin, when I am bad, I come out from under God's blessings. I no longer have God's blessings. And God's face upon me is one of displeasure. God, when, if I could see God's face when I sin, it's a frown. He is unhappy with me. And that's not correct. Because you see, if you say that, then you've forgotten verse 1 of chapter 3, which is your identity. Your identity now, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, if then you have been raised with Christ, if you have come to acknowledge your sin, if you've come to acknowledge a new way with Jesus Christ and receive Him, you are raised with Christ, now you are, as it says, seek the things that are above, for Christ is seated at the right hand of God, because that's your dwelling place as well. You're a child of God now. You have a new identity. So that when you do bad things, He may, he may um, discipline you, as it says in Hebrews 12, but He doesn't punish you out of His wrath. 
You know, are we angry as parents when we discipline our children? Are we really angry at them or really the things that they've gotten themselves into and the consequences? We discipline them, but we don't punish them. We don't beat them up in our anger. We discipline them because their identity is our child and we're shaping them. Let me try to give you an example. When I was a young man, I grew up on a small farm. And this particular stretch in the, the road had a number of small farms, and they were all related to one big farm that was my grandfather's. So that my father had a piece that he had inherited, and my uncle had a piece that he had inherited, and then next to him was an aunt that had a piece that she had inherited, and they all had small farms. Now, one of my best friends on earth was my cousin, Zach. And we lived on our small place, then my grandfather's small place, and then my cousin Zach's small place. And we would often meet each other in the middle at the barn, the big barn in the loft, to kind of talk about what we were going to do when we were out of school. That was kind of our clubhouse. And we knew, we knew that one of the, the, the cardinal rules were never have fire in a hay barn. Never have fire in a barn. Never, never, never. And so one day, we were there, and I don't know who produced it, but somebody produced cigarettes. And we thought, this is going to be so cool. We're going to, you know, you know, my dad smoked, and I'm like, this is going to be so cool. We've got, you know, cigarettes, and we've got matches, and we're in the hayloft. It's just going to be great. Let's smoke a cigarette. So we smoked a cigarette and coughed our way through it, and we were, you know, we kind of practiced our hand pose and everything and uh, looked real tough. And then we put it out, and we really thought that we'd gotten away with something. And then we just kept talking in the barn, and then I heard a voice, and it was my dad. Boys, are you smoking up there? Uh, uh, all right, come down here. And we came down, and my dad, like you would draw a sword, he could pull his belt off just in a minute, whoosh, you know. And one at a time, he proceeded to whip us. And I was just afterwards, and then he, he said, now, you guys know, don't you ever do that again. And then he left, and I was like, oh, I just hate him. We weren't doing anything wrong. We didn't catch it on fire. Just, I, just, I just hate it. And my cousin Zach was just beaming, just, just beaming and smiling. I'm like, how are you smiling after being spanked like that? How, why are you, you know, what's wrong with you? Did you enjoy the pain or the lash or what? And he said, he called me son. My dad would often do that with Zach or with me. He would say, son. And that day he called Zach, son. What you don't know is that Zach's father, a couple of years earlier, was electrocuted under a house when he had a drill and he was drilling a hole and he hit a live wire and it electrocuted him. And Zach and his brother found their dad and had to pull him out from under the house and he was without a father. And my dad began to, as it were, treat him like one of the family. He would often eat at my table and I would begin to grow closer and closer to him and my father kind of adopted him. But that day, Zach responded as we should respond. He responded and said, my identity is a son. 
I was responding as if it's just one more command, one more principle, one more laying down the law, and I was seeing it not so much as discipline, but punishment. Zach saw it out of his new identity, so when difficult things came into his life, if it came from the hand of my dad, it came from a loving father who had adopted him. We can commit two errors, two errors when we, having read through this, looking at verse 6 and verse 7, when we contemplate God's wrath coming because of the ways that we walk in, he says in verse 7, in these you two once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them away. And he begins a litany of sin. And he's basically saying, look, those that walk in these ways, like you used to, God's wrath is being even visited upon them now. They're feeling God's frown. But not you. Not you. You have a new identity in God, so why are you walking in these old ways? They don't hold, cap- they don't hold you captive any longer. When we look at God's commands, when we look at His laws, hear me now, when you look at these rules given in verse 8 particularly, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, when you look at those rules, you're going to most likely, you're going to treat them one of two ways. I'm going to put everybody in the room, including myself, in this camp this morning. We're either going to look at those rules and we're going to treat them as a legalist or we're going to treat them as one who has license to not obey. Sinclair Ferguson, who is a pastor and writer, theologian, he's actually a pastor in Columbia, South Carolina now, Scottish theologian, he once said that in Christian counseling, pastoral counseling, when people would come to him, he could put them in one of two categories and his treatment was one of two ways. He said, I either, I either comfort people that are disturbed because of their behavior or I disturb people who are comfortable in their behavior. I like to think of it like this. Some of us have our conscience that little meter that goes off and says, oh, 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 that's wrong. Some of us, that meter is way sensitive. Some of us have a conscience that is screwed down too tight. Too tight. You can't dress that way. Can't, can't drink that. Christians don't get a tattoo. You know, this is this, you know, we got all these rules. I mean, everything. It's, it's just like we're so, we're just so, our conscience is just screwed down way too tight. But on the other hand, we've got those who the conscience is not screwed down tight enough. So it's like, you know, when I asked Christ to forgive me, he forgave me, you said past, present, and future, that I'll always be his child. He'll never throw me out of the family now. So, you know, God is a loving God and he's got a grace. So it's all good. It's all grace. God doesn't really care. That I keep the rules. And then the legalists say, oh man, you, you're, oh, you gotta keep the rules. God is not happy with you unless you keep the rules. So one is 
like the conscience is screwed on so tight, it's grounded in earning God's approval. I earn God's approval. When I look and see God's face, when I've done something bad, it is shaking his head, but I, I know that I'm going to try harder next time to earn a little bit of a smile. The other one, the conscience is so loose that it doesn't matter, you know. God is just, he's a God of love. And so it's grounded not in God's law, but it's grounded in God's love. You know, he just forgives us and he's just, he's just so loving. And, and, you know, it doesn't matter if we do these things. You're just too tight, just way too tight. Which one is it, class? Which one is it? Does God want us to obey and put energy into obeying every one of these things? Let's just focus on verse 8 this morning. Paul had a reason in telling Colossians these sins. Does God want us to, without giving any quarter, does he say, obey these things or I will be angry and displeased with you? And if you do obey them, then I will be pleased with you. Does God say, you know what, I've got some suggestions for you through my servant Paul. Hey, listen, I just want you to, you know, every now and then give some attention to anger, malice, slander, obscene talking about. You know what, when you tell a dirty joke or when you ha, 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 laugh at a really obscene joke, you know, don't, God doesn't care. I mean, you know, this is this world. It's not heaven yet, you know. I mean, you know, so what, I got a little angry. God, you know, he'd forgive me anyway. Just chill out. not correct either. What is it that God would have us do? God would say, I want you to remember, remember your identity in me through Jesus Christ. I want you to remember that you're my son and that you look at these things now not as a way to please me, not as a way that if you disobey them that they displease me. I want you to look at these things I want you to look at these things and say, these are things that are in the image of Christ. And he is such a beautiful Savior to me. I'm mindful of the ways that I used to walk. I'm mindful that he lovingly and graciously came to me and he he wooed me to himself. But I'm glad that he also lawfully paid a debt for me by dying in my place. In other words, the two merged. The law and love, they merged in the image of Christ. And that is what I want to be like. The Bible is filled with commands and prohibitions and laws and rules. But if you don't see them pointing you to Jesus Christ, you're either going to become like the legalist, they're just rules to obey, or you're going to become like the the one who has a license, the libertarian, so to speak, and saying, you know what, when I became a Christian, I'm free of all those things. Christ obeyed all those things. I don't have to obey those things. And neither way will you become like Christ, which is the goal of God the Father. The law, as John Calvin would say, is our schoolmaster, and it teaches us even about our need for Jesus Christ. And left to ourselves, we'll never become like Christ, but... He wants to shape us to become more and more like him. Now, let me show you two quick examples, and I've got to be really quick with this. I see that in verse 8, Paul basically 
as he's talking about this, as he talks about giving up certain things, as he tells us, now that you have a new identity in Christ, now that you're supposed to grow like Jesus Christ, I've told you everything about Christ, what he's done for you earlier chapters. I'm telling you now who you are in God, and now I'm going to tell you what you should begin to look like as marks that you're growing more and more to resemble the family that you are now a part of. This is what a Christian should look like. This is what Christ looked like. The first group is anger, and then you'll notice that the second category could be the tongue. The tongue. Now, in anger, there's two words that he uses here particularly. One is thumos, and one is ogre. Ogre. Thumos is that kind of anger that it's like the, the, the Greeks compared it. They would also use this word to straw fire. It kind of springs up, and then it's over. Oh, this makes me so angry. Smash, and oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to lose my head. Ogre is more like a coal fire. Think about those, those like St. Elmo's fire. You know, that old, those old coal mines that it's, it's not a big blaze, and then it's out, but it's always burning. It's, it's just constantly burning. Just The embers are always there. Now again, for the sake of not simply a sermon, but for our own sake, I'm going to assume that you and I all struggle with anger. We all struggle with anger. It's there. You may say, well, you know, there's sometimes that uh, you can, Paul says himself, you can be angry and do not sin. Don't even worry about mastering that one. Don't make that your goal. Anger, if you look at it here, anger is anger around, uh, Anger is that thing that happens when, when somebody gets in between me and something that I want or something that I want to happen. I get angry. I have my rights. And someone is taking something away from me or I'm not getting, I'm not getting the treatment that I, I deserve. James 4, if you want to read on your own, beginning with verse 1, James, the brother of Christ, says this. He says, you know, anger and quarrel and fightings, do that, does that not arise because you want but you don't get? You know, you could put the whole Bible, you could take the Bible and say that it's a story of two angers. There's God's anger because He wants His cause he wants his holy way. He wants the plan of rightness, the righteousness things. He wants those things to be successful. And then we want, our anger comes up with God, we want things our rights. We want things our way. God wants his way. He's angry with those that do not perform his bidding and go his way. We want our way. We're angry at God when we don't get our way, as well as angry at others in community with God. But Jesus Christ comes, and in the middle, he satisfies God's righteous. He's right. God has, he's our creator. He has a right to be angry with us as rebels. He has a, a right to be angry and demonstrate that anger upon us with consequences. And he demonstrated it upon Jesus Christ in our place. 
so that for those of us who are Christians, God's anger is quelled and satisfied and his wrath is no more. So even when we disobey, God is not angry with us because of our identity. Now, as a father, as a father we can say he is not pleased that we continue to go in that direction and he will discipline us, but not out of wrath, not out of anger, for that is no more. This morning, I've got to leave this because it's not a sermon on anger. But there's some of you right now that you're totally deaf to what I'm saying. You're, you think of anger, and you think either, well, when I get angry, it's, it's okay. It's justified. I'm telling you, I doubt very seriously it is. If your anger is not in one of two categories, then I'm going to tell you that your anger is probably, in all likelihood, you'd have to show me evidence otherwise, is sin. The first category is the things that make you angry are the same things that make God angry. In other words, you're angry at sin. And when you see a family member or a neighbor or an employee or a fellow student, you see them their life and it gets out of control because of the sinful activity that they're in. And you just, I hate Satan for that. I hate the tempter for that. I hate sin, but I love the person then that anger, that category of anger, anger at sin and not the sinner, is okay. Because you hate what God hates. But you need to hate it in your life equally well. Or the other category is social injustice. And there's very few of us, most of us as Christians, we need to get angry about social injustice, and we're not. But you see someone cruelly treated, and it prompts you even to either an outburst, properly channeled, or to some act to secure justice for that people or that person or that group or that issue. But you better make sure that it's truly an injustice. But most of us get angry because we're fighting for our rights. And we glamorize our rights. So I'm this morning, don't just simply say, those that struggle with anger are this very narrow group. I want you to broaden the spectrum. And I want you to do something else. Here's a test. Ask, if you're married, ask your mate. If you're not married, ask a good friend. When was the last time in six weeks, the last six weeks, when was the last time you saw me angry? See, we're blind to it. We, we, we justify ourselves and say, oh, that wasn't, oh, that wasn't angry. You ought to see me when I'm mad. That wasn't angry. I was just, I was just, you know, tough love, tough love. Man. That's tough, all right. You know? And then secondly, when was the last time that you actually confessed anger to God? Notice Paul is very specific here. In fact, he's got plenty of synonyms for it. But when was the last time you confessed it to God and then you went to an injured party and you confessed it to them? And if you say never, you really have an anger problem. Well, wait a minute, Phil. What do you mean? If I've never confessed it to another person and if I've never confessed it to God, what do you mean I have an anger problem? You think you're right all the time. You think, you, you think you're never wrong. And so you're, you'll get angry all the time with other people because they're all wrong and you're all right. All right, I've got to leave this because now I'm really meddling. I'm really in people's stuff. 
if you look at slander, obscene talk from your mouth, it's very interesting that Paul puts that together with anger. If you were to look back in Matthew chapter 5, which is the Sermon on the Mount, verse 22, Jesus did the same thing. He put anger and he put the tongue, the mouth, in the same category. Now, again, this is not a sermon on anger and on issues of the tongue, but I find this very interesting. In verse 22 of Matthew 5, Jesus says this, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. That's some, that's some pretty stern language right there. That's very stern language. I think the reason that Paul touches on anger here and he touches on the tongue and the issues, obscene language, foul talk, slander, blasphemy, all that comes from the tongue, is because every, this sermon will preach to any congregation. Any congregation. I can go to any seminary and preach it to all those would-be pastors and preachers and theologians, and it must hit home with them too because everybody struggles with anger and everybody struggles with the issue of the tongue because it's the last vestiges of the heart to surrender completely to God. We fight for our rights, we defend ourselves, we correct others, and we show judgment upon others. Look at James 3. James 3. He begins there in James 3. If you look at verse 2, he says, We all stumble. James 3, verse 2. We all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. He goes down and he talks about verse 6. The tongue is a fire a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Not mine. I'm a preacher. Let me, uh, I mean, I read that, and I want to think he's talking about somebody else. But what is afoot is this. He is saying, if you want to be like Christ, then work on anger and work on the tongue. Don't You'll know that you're not a legalist and you'll know that you're not someone who is a libertarian if you will not settle for the anger that's present in your life or for the use of your tongue right now. Now, I know I'm saying a lot, but let me try to break it down for you. I want you to take a test. I'm serious. I want you to take a test. Starting right now for the remainder of the day. I won't even ask you to do it for 24 hours. But for the remainder of the day, I want you to not say one thing critical of another person. I mean, we only got, I mean, gosh, it's 11.35. Whoa, i got to end. Uh, we only got, you know, half a day left. And we're going to probably be asleep four hours of that. So don't say one thing critical of another person for the remainder of that time. Secondly, do not, do not say one word of gossip about another person. And then lastly, do not defend yourself. 
Don't put yourself forward. Don't defend yourself. If you feel like you're misunderstood, don't say one word of defense of yourself. Do that for the remaining hours. Now, some of you already are in the camp of legalists, and you're saying, I can do that because I just won't talk. Some of you are saying, you know what? The pastor's all well. What is he talking about? Why should I even bother? You know what? I'll just repent. I'll just move on. God doesn't really care, does he? And we'll lower the standard. You know what? Not only are we not supposed to be doing those things, the tongue is supposed to be used to say encouraging things. It's it's not only not to discourage, it's to encourage. It's not only not to be critical, it's to be kind. So it is truly a great measure of where you are in the likeness of Christ right now to look at your anger. What makes you mad? Why does it make you mad? Is it really about you? Or is it about God? The things that make God mad, if that makes you mad, that's good. That's like Christ. But if you continue to struggle with a temper, and some of you know, because I've confessed it to you, the roundabout makes me mad every time I go on it. I'm trying to find another way. I'm going to be a legalist. I'm just going to avoid the roundabout because it gets me angry with other people. Why? Because I'm fighting for my rights. It's not about God, it's about me. And then you know what I do when I'm in the car and I get on the roundabout? I get mad, think I'm, I, I'm silent about it. Mm-hmm. No, I start talking to him. You idiot! You're supposed to be in that lane, not that lane. Who taught you how to drive? South Carolinians, you can't read or something. You don't know what a roundabout is? I can say that because I'm from South Carolina. You see the connection? We are to be Christ-like. And Paul says, look at your temper and temperament and look at your language. Now, I could end the sermon right here and I probably should. Okay? I probably should just end it right here and say, go work on it. Go do it. Get busy. Make it happen. And then next week you're going to come, you're going to hang your head and you're going to say, man, I blew the daylights out of that test. I mean, I was hardly outside of the church, and I hit the roundabout, and I I found that I was critical. And I found out, because I talked to my good friend, there was anger in my life, and I was not even seeing it. Wow, I've got a lot of work to do. Let me tell you in closing, something that you do need to do, and something that you can't do, but God will do for you. One thing that you need to do and one thing that God will do for you. Number one, in verse 9 when he says, do not lie to each other, I left that out of verse 8 because I think it's a separate category. I think he's talking about something else. I think that what Paul is saying right there is don't come to church and pretend to be a person who doesn't struggle with sin. Don't, Don't get caught up into pretend land. Be realistic. Be a congregation that confesses its sin to one another. Be willing to say, I am a sinner. Get, get help. Don't, don't, have, don't guard it so much. Be quick to confess to one another. Become a congregation that doesn't lie, doesn't position, because that's no help at all. You're a mess. We all know it. You just act like we don't know it. We're all messes. We really are, but you know what? We're his messes. 
You really are. That's verse 11, and I'll take it up next week. We all are. There's no difference. The Greeks aren't better than the barbarians. The barbarians who are really uncouth people, you know what? They say, well, we're not like the Greeks. We're not as good as those guys, but we're better than the Scythians. To the, Scythi- the, to the barbarians, the Scythians were the barbarians. And the Scythians said, well, maybe we're worse than you barbarians, but guess what? We're not slaves. You know What are they doing? They're comparing themselves to each other and saying, well, at least I can take some stock and I'm not as bad as them. That's pretend Christianity. Christianity doesn't look to another person to judge as their standard. Christianity looks to Jesus. How am I doing in light of Him? Does my anger look like Him? Does my tongue look like His? How can I get there? I can confess to those that I'm even sinning against. I can say for others, pray for me in this regard. I can stop pretending like I've got it under control. And secondly, Christ promises there in verse 10 that through His Holy Spirit, for you see as He ends up, He says that Christ is not only all, but He's in all. Christ not only, when He was betrayed, He not only did something in my place, but following His ascension to heaven, He came and He dwells in me. It's called the Holy Spirit, which is a reflection of Christ. It's completely God, the person of Christ, in me. There is a power there that we sometimes forget that's available to us. And the more we dwell on Christ, the more we think of what He has done, the more we think of of Him dying in our place, the more I contemplate the gospel, the good news that I was a sinner, I was granted pardon, and now He's not done with me. He's just begun. He wants to shape me to be the man and the woman that He wants to be. I can cry out to Him to give me that power, to work it in me, even in, unwe- in ways that are unknown and mysterious. And He'll do it. It's called the means of grace. Something happens when you pray. Something happens when you read the Bible. You'll find if you have not read the Bible, and listen up to me if you're not a follower of Christ, Open the Bible. And you can pray like my first prayer. God, I'm not even sure if you're real. But if you are, would you speak to me? And I don't even know how to turn this thing on called the Bible. But I'm going to begin reading here in Matthew about your son Jesus. That if you've got something for me here, if you really are real and you really do promise to change my life, because my life is going down the tubes right now, then speak to me. By the time I got to Matthew 6, God had spoken. Not in an audible voice, but the words. It was as if He were sitting right there, that the Bible became more than prohibitions, more than commands. It became promises that I could take upon being forgiven, asking for forgiveness, and then standing and saying, I'm a new child, and I'm still going to blow it, but he's constantly at work shaping me and molding me and not leaving me to myself. Why? Because he died, not for valueless, worthless creatures. He died, and that gives us value. And we're his precious children now, and he's going to constantly make us Christ-like. For you see, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he said, this represents my body, which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. 
In the same manner, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup represents the new covenant. Not the old covenant where you keep the law and then you'll be good to go, but the new covenant where Christ kept the law. All you have to do is keep Christ and remember who you are. This new covenant of my blood, such that when you drink it, you remember, and you remember me and what I did for you. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim my death on your behalf until my promised return for you. This table is a means of grace. In some mysterious way, when you take of this bread and you take of this cup, you're saying this, I hunger to be more like Christ. And I know that I can't do it in my own power. But Christ, as I am reminded of who you are and your love for me, then I submit and I surrender to your change. Let us pray. Father, I ask that you take this cup and you take this bread and that you would use it for exactly that, grace in my life. That as this bread and this cup goes down, even into my body, that it would remind me of my pardon and it would remind me of the power that is available to walk and to live in these new ways as a son and daughter. And to this end I pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like to invite uh, Shane and Kenny, our elders, to come forward.